All right, before we get started, I've got to give a little bit of a background um, to tonight's message, because as you can see, it's a little bit different than normal. There you go, yeah. So, uh, yeah, exactly. I had to bring in the, the ringer, the heavy hitter. Um, for about 26 years now, we have this little rhythm where we'll go to speaker, speaking arrangements or Bible studies or meetings or whatever, and um, I will speak for a completely and utterly appropriate amount of time, and um, anybody who knows me knows that's a lie, and we'll, uh, and we'll, we'll talk about whatever we're talking about, we'll exhaust a subject, and you know, everybody in the room will say their piece, and, uh, and there'll be that lull when you're waiting to see if anybody else has something to say, nobody says anything, including my wife, and then we get in the car to go home, and my wife goes, so here's what I was thinking, and then she tells me this amazing stuff, and I'm always like, why didn't she say that? So, so, uh, so uh, I'm always like, you should have totally put that in there. And she's like, well, there's never an opening or whatever. So since we started the church, I've been kind of begging her to uh, to speak with me, and she finally caved. So that's what this is tonight. Um, this is her finally giving in to uh, to share with me. I got to put this up here. This is so we make sure that we get you on the tape. Okay. So. Um, so at the beginning of the week, what I did was I uh, I looked at our this is kind of our final teaching on this study we've been in all summer long. This is like 27 or 28 weeks of Matthew, and so I was trying to think of how to wrap this up, and uh, I came up with a nice, clean, academic, beautiful outline that we could use um, to close this uh, this sermon. And when I presented that to Esther, she said, "No, that's not what we're going to do." So. Um, so this is not going to be that um, outline. This is going to be, we're going to talk about our feelings. And, um, and actually, we're gonna, what we decided to do is we're going to kind of just, uh, you know, we've been in this study for a long time. And this one, uh, I kind of went into having no idea where this study was going to go. I just, I just kind of dove in. And so it's been a pretty powerful study for us, a pretty meaningful one. And so we're just going to kind of share the high points for us going through this story, what we thought was some of the most powerful things we pulled out of this book, out of this kind of study of the sermons of the book of Matthew, the five big sermons that Matthew records. And I'm going to start my first one with tonight's reading, um, because I was, uh, I spent so much time analyzing how this book was put together, because as you get into it, you find out it's very structured. Uh, we actually talked about this last week, where uh, Matthew would record some things Jesus would do, and then he would record this sermon that Jesus would preach about the things he did. So he starts out with this kind of grand narrative about this very Jewish-themed thing where um, he records part of Jesus' birth, including the, the uh, genealogy, this very Jewish genealogy through David all the way to Abraham. And he, he records the, the wise men coming from the east, which no one else records uh, because that's kind of a prophetic thing that the Messiah would draw these rulers from other nations. And so... Matthew records that. He records the, uh, um, the, uh, uh, the temptations, the 40 days in the wilderness, which would have been this number that just would have triggered any Jew immediately, you know, this 40 days kind of concept. Uh, he goes to the baptism, you know, which any Jew would have seen going, you know, the, the passing of the Red Sea. Kind of thing. He even records the trip to Egypt and back out, which would have been another you know, kind of super key thing to a Jew to record the, the to and from Egypt story. So he's setting up this kind of mosaic picture with Jesus, and then he sends Jesus up on a mountain to preach this sermon. And so it's pretty obvious 
from a Jewish context, what Matthew is doing here, he's setting up this kind of new Torah, this, this new idea of Torah, where, where in this story where Moses would have gone on the mountain and come down with the Ten Commandments and eventually with the full Torah, Jesus kind of does the same thing. And so the Sermon on the Mount sits in this pattern perfectly like Moses coming down with the Torah. And it's pretty obvious that Matthew writing to Jews was trying to give that image. And so it set me on this picture of, of the structure that he was using. And immediately after that, he records all these miracles, just miracle, 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 no real responses, just mostly all these miracles. At the very end of that, Jesus says, um, man, there's so much to do. The harvest is so full. Pray that God sends workers. And immediately after he says that, he goes into the missional discourse where he's sending them out for the first time by themselves. And he preaches a sermon. Here's what you can expect when you go out. And as soon as that message is over, Jesus goes and, and starts to do more things. And this, for the first time, you get some response from people, how they're responding to Jesus. And some are responding kind of in the neutral, like they don't really know what to expect. John the Baptist sends somebody, they're like, hey, are you really the one we're looking for? Did I miss it before? Um, Jesus' mother and brothers come, and they're like, hey, why don't you come home? You're stirring up some trouble. This could be bad for you. You don't really know where they stand. Do they really believe in him? Then you get the Pharisees for the first time flat out rejecting Jesus. And then you get this multitude that's following him from city to city. So you, so for the first time, you see some are rejecting, some are accepting, some are in this kind of neutral middle. We don't know what to think. And immediately Jesus launches into this sermon we call the parabolic discourse where he gives these parables. And most of the parables are about there's all these four kinds of soil. Some accept the seeds, some don't. It, it's almost like he's preaching to fit what just happened. Like, hey, you can't expect everybody to accept me. Some are wheat, some are tares. And, and so he gives this sermon that kind of fits what he says. And immediately after that, he goes out again. And this time is another list of miracles, but these miracles are different. These are these weird cooperative miracles where you've got the feeding of great multitudes. And this time the disciples are engaged in that because they're the ones, he's like, hey, you go feed them. And they're like, what? we've got like a couple of fish sandwiches. What are we going to do to feed them? And and so they're partaking in the miracle now and joining in. For the first time, you see Jesus getting, Peter walks on water along with Jesus. And for the first time, they can't do a miracle. They're trying to cast a demon out of a kid and they can't do it. And Jesus gets crazy, super frustrated. Like it, come, it kind of comes out of nowhere. Like, how long shall I be with you? And, and how long shall I have patience? You know, and, and so we see for the first time that maybe this wasn't supposed to be just a Jesus thing. This is supposed to be kind of a cooperative thing. It's supposed to be something he expected his disciples to truly join in on. Then immediately after that, he preaches what we call the ecclesiological discourse or the church discourse. And, and he talks about what it, how the church's heart should be toward each other, toward the lost, toward the, the least in the, in the community. And he, he preaches what it means to be in the church, what it means to be a people of God. And then immediately after that, he launches into what we would consider the most combative parts of the story. He, he has the triumphal entry. He flips the tables in the, in the, uh, in the temple, and, and he has this now open hostility uh, with the Pharisees, where he's like, woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. And he, he goes on this kind of rampage, this kind of head-to-head rampage with the Pharisees for the first time. And, and you really get to see the kingdoms clashing. And then immediately, his, the sermon that Matthew records is, is Matthew 24 and 25, what we call the eschatological discourse, the end times when these two kingdoms are eventually finally going to clash and how we wait for that clash. And so you see the structure Matthew's using that's very typical. And it's very um, intentional that he's not just like a recorder who's just as it's happening, he's writing it down. He's, you can tell he has a purpose for the way he's piecing these stories together. And what jumped out at me 
as I was looking at the structure, is how right smack dab in the middle of it, Matthew comes along and says, tonight's passage, he goes, and then he came by and called this tax collector named Matthew. And he tells this story, and it dawned on me that this is Matthew's story, that he's giving his testimony in the middle of this grand narrative. He's, he's kind of taking the role, which was a, a very respected Jewish role where, where you tell the story of God. The, the prophets did it. The poets did it. The, the, the king's scribes did it, where they just recorded the story of God. And, and Matthew is taking that position, and then he goes in the middle of it and says, oh, yeah, and then he called me, and, and he asked me to follow him. And, and what I love about this, we don't have very many details, but we know the book of Matthew was written about 40 years after Jesus' death, which means this call, this Matthew saying, and then there was this completely selfish, completely greedy tax collector who had been ostracized by his people, and Jesus comes along and says, follow me. And now 40 years later, Matthew is still so committed that he's writing this narrative. And I love that Matthew saw his story in the grand story. Like he saw himself. Can you imagine like your story being one of the pericopes of, of the scripture, of, of God's story? Matthew sees his story as part of the story of God. And we pray every week that our kids would see themselves in the story of God. And so for the first time ever, it dawned on me that that's what Matthew saw. He saw his story as part of the story of God. And, and how weird would that be to be writing these incredibly historic events and say, and then he called me. And then he called me to follow him. And I did. And, and you become part of the story of God. So I guess the thing that got me most was this, this funny little insert that Matthew sticks in while he's recording these giant Jewish concepts and he's he's playing with history and he's playing with the future and he's playing with now and then he says and and then here's my testimony he asked me to follow him too and I did so you've heard Chris's story of why I agreed to do this (laughs) which isn't really true (laughs) um so the reason that I would have to say that I decided to do this is that 15 years ago I did study the book of Matthew And when I did, it completely changed my life. It changed everything that I knew about this Jesus that I thought I knew. And so when we studied it this time, I thought, does it look any different now? Does he look any different? Does he look, does Jesus still look the same as he did 15 years ago? And some new things jumped out at me. One of them was the fact that, um, Jesus wasn't what anybody expected. And it started in the story of his birth. An angel comes to Mary and tells her, you're going to have a baby. And so now all of a sudden you have this teen pregnancy scandal. And an angel has to go to Joseph and tell him that he has to marry this girl who's pregnant. Not by him. But they probably had, they probably already had a wedding planned. They had a big party planned and they had all of their their hopes and dreams of how they were going to start out this, this marriage of theirs, and God wrecked all of it in the very beginning. And sometimes I think God does that in our lives, too. He wrecks our dreams, and he wrecks the things that we think that we need and the things that we want. And then you move on to John the Baptist. Um, when Jesus went to be baptized by John the Baptist, 
John, John the Baptist immediately says, I'm not even worthy to tie your sandals. And Jesus says, no, you have to do it. It has to be this way. And so Jesus was continually, there's story after story where we see that Jesus wasn't at all what they thought he was supposed to be. They thought he was supposed to come like this king and he was supposed to come with, I mean, John says he was supposed to come and baptize them with the Holy Spirit and fire, whatever the world that means. Like, I don't really know, but I don't think it was what John saw because later on he asks, he sends his disciples, he's in prison and he says, are you really the Messiah? And Jesus didn't even answer then. He just told them. Tell him what you see. The lame are being healed. The deaf are being healed. The gospel is being preached. And so throughout his entire life, I think Jesus just kept doing all of these things that weren't what anybody expected. And so I think that the reason that that reaches out to me so much is because that's the way that God seems to always work in my life. Because I tend to be an organized person. I tend to... um, I tend to plan things and decide exactly how things are going to go. And it started that way as a child. I knew exactly what I was going to do. I knew exactly what career I was going to have. I was going to be a special ed teacher. My children are the only ones who will tell you that that's really what I am, but I'm really not. (laughs) I knew what kind of house I was going to live in. I was going to live in either a colonial house with a white picket fence, or I was going to live in a craftsman-style house with a stone fence around it, and I was going to have... English gardens out front that are kind of messy and not exactly... I didn't know what any of those words meant when I was a kid. (laughs) I knew exactly what my life was going to look like, all the way down to exactly who I was going to marry. The only problem was this guy wasn't exactly good for me, and everyone around me knew that. Everyone knew that he... (laughs) I'm going to tell a story about Rusty here. <laughs> I've known Rusty since I was 11 years or since he was 11 years old and I was 8 years old. So we've known one another for a long time. Anyway, um and so I knew who I was supposed to marry. And I was so stubborn that I even when people would say, "This person's not good for you. You shouldn't be you shouldn't be wasting your time on him." I just knew. I knew that this is what I'm supposed to do and I was stubborn and bullheaded and I was going to do it. And I that was how things were going to be. And one night after church camp, Rusty's standing outside on the deck with me, and he, kind of as a joke, I think, I don't think it was really real, but you'd have to ask him. He asked me, what would it take you to walk away? And as a joke back, I said, well, someone would have to be stupid enough to kiss me on the first date. And so, so, but at that point, I knew no one even... No one even would ask me out because I had, I mean, Rusty was like my big brother, and he took me everywhere. And I was an annoying little sister who told him how he was doing stupid, dumb things and, and refused to participate in any of his fun. Anyway, um, but, any, but I was, I, I just knew, there's, no one would ever do that. No one would ever kiss me because no one ever, ever even asked me out. I'm surrounded by these people that wouldn't let anybody ask me out. And so then, um, less than a year later, um, Chris asked me out, and he was dumb enough to kiss me. (laughs) He did not kiss me back, by the way. It was like kissing a rock. So anyway, we're going to move on from that. Um, I went inside and cried. And he That's how good it was. 
And he always said that that was because I was so bummed. But really what it was is that I knew when he kissed me, the, my conversation with Rusty came back, and I knew that God was saying, this is the one. You need to walk away from what you thought was best and follow this one. And Chris was dumb enough to push through Rusty and all the other, and my dad. My dad hung a teddy bear out. From a noose. The, on, on a noose from the front door. When Chris came to ask to marry me, he hung a teddy bear. And he was downstairs cleaning, cleaning his shotguns. Yeah. Or whatever they were. Gun. He was cleaning a gun. He was horrible to him. He and actually Chris, mailed me a 50 caliber round with my name on it. In the real mail. Like, I opened the package and my name was on a 50 cal round. Yeah. Anyway, Chris was brave enough. Not stupid There's enough. He was brave enough to fight through all of that to win my heart. And God knew that that was what I needed. That I needed someone who was going to be brave enough to fight through all of those things. Because I was stubborn. And I wasn't going to follow easily. Okay, so my second one. Um, the second thing I got out of this book that that uh, that shocked me again, it had a little bit to do with the structure, was that Matthew keeps using these um, these phrases, and I'm going to run through some of them. I probably won't read all of them, although I might. And Jesus went about all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing all kinds of sickness and all kinds of disease among the people. And his fame went throughout all Assyria, and they brought him sick people who were afflicted with various diseases and torments, and those who were demon-possessed and epileptics and paralytics, and he healed them. Then in Matthew 8, he keeps going, and he says, When evening had come, they brought him uh, many who were demon-possessed, and he cast out evil spirits with a word and healed all who were sick. Then Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every sickness and every disease among the people. Continues again, am I in the right place? Yeah, in chapter 12. And when Jesus knew it, he withdrew from there, and multitudes followed him, and he healed them all. In 14, and when Jesus went out, he saw a great multitude, and, when he, uh, and he was moved by compassion and healed their sick. Chapter 15, then great multitudes came to him, having with them the lame, the mute, the blind, the maimed, and many others, and they laid their... Uh, and laid them down at Jesus' feet, and he healed them. And great multitudes followed him, and he healed them there. Over and over again, Matthew kind of just puts this generic blanket and where he's like, and then a ton of people came, and Jesus healed them all. Which, every time I bumped into one of those, it made me wonder why Matthew would record the specific stories he recorded. Because he records so many times when Jesus just healed everybody who came, that it means the ones where he said, and then this one blind guy came, that there must have been something special in the stories that he did tell. So I started to dig deeper into each of those stories, and it seemed like Matthew was fixated by the, by the shocking ones, the ones that were unexpected, the ones that were um, not the people that you would think Matthew, um, or that Jesus should have um, spent time with. So um, and also there's, there's the, it, it wouldn't have been that weird for Jesus to heal. Like in the Jewish context, they had men of God and, and prophets and things that did great wonders throughout their whole story. So, so the fact that Jesus could come and heal a bunch of people didn't necessarily make him the Messiah. 
because this was part of their narrative that people could do this. So there had to be something different about him to make him Messiah. And this is where I think Matthew um, fixated a little bit. Is he, he liked to grab the stories where Jesus broke barriers, where Jesus did things out of the ordinary for what a Jewish prophet or a Jewish man of God would do. And so we see him um, healing, surprising people like a, a Roman centurion comes to him and says, hey, my servant is sick. And we forget that these are the enemy at the time. Like Israel was, a, was a, basically a slave nation to Rome. They had been conquered by Rome. And there was, there was soldiers stationed in Israel to keep them basically subjected. And, and one of them, so one of the enemies, Jesus is a Jew. These people are here basically holding them captive. And one of them comes and says, hey, I've got a servant that's sick. Um, and Jesus doesn't even hesitate. He says, you know, basically credits the guy for coming and even, even turns everybody else like, man, this guy's got an incredible amount of faith. Go your way. Your servant's healed. Like heals the enemy's servant, like not even the enemy. And, and, and we got no indication that this guy becomes a, a Jesus follower. He just comes to him asking for help and he helps him. He, he heals a Canaanite woman who, you know, was not, a, was not a Jew. We don't even know why she's there. She's one of the foreigners. She's one of the immigrants in the land. And, and Jesus... Uh, she comes to Jesus and, and he heals her. Uh, there's a temple ruler who says, hey, my daughter's sick. Would you come and heal my daughter? And the temple rulers were the Sadducees. Uh, the, the Sadducees were the ones who ruled the temple. And so these are the people who are criticizing Jesus openly at every turn. And one of them comes and says, hey, my daughter's sick. And Jesus says, let's go. Let's go heal her. And by the time he gets there, he finds out she had died. And Jesus resurrects her. And, and so Matthew records this story of this this guy who was one of Jesus' greatest critics comes. He heals a paralytic man, and before he heals him, he forgives his sins. He says, hey, your sins are forgiven you, knowing that everyone in the room was going to judge him for doing that. And they did. They were like, who is this man? He blasphemes. He can't forgive sin. Like he knew if I, all he had to do was heal the guy. All he had to do was like, dude, you're healed, and keep his head down. Instead, he, he openly takes somebody that he knew no one else in the room was going to accept and say, this is going to get me... It'd be like somebody walking down to this altar, and I know if I engage this person, all of you guys are going to think, what is he doing? That person's a whatever. And Jesus goes, hey, your sins are forgiven you. Rise up and walk. Even though he knew he was going to get judged for it. So I see Matthew recording story after story after story where Jesus is crossing some kind of barrier, where Jesus is breaking down some kind of wall between people. And I can't help when I read it to hear, and then a Muslim came to Jesus and said, I need help. And, and all of the American Christians going, wait a minute, you know. Or, and then the, this arrogant atheist came up to Jesus and said, my daughter is sick. And all of us saying, you know, oh, rub it in his face. Like, he had to come to Jesus to ask for help, you know. And then the homosexual was sick and needed compassion, and Jesus had compassion on him. And then the liberal or the conservative or whoever's on the opposite side of the aisle from you, you know, was, was broken down and poor, and, and Jesus just gave to him. The person with a totally different theological perspective from you, the person that you would debate with and tell them they're wrong and they've got it all wrong. And, and Jesus 
healed them and he showed compassion on all of them. We're so committed to our tribalism sometimes that we don't even recognize, and, and everybody is. That's the thing. I love when people are like, I don't like the church. It's full of hypocrites. And I'm always like, and so's the world. Like, the, like show me a, a, a sect of people that are not hypocritical. Like, and then I'll yell at the church. But yeah, we are absolutely full of hypocrites. And so is every other place you go. Like, it's, the only thing is we have a tendency to pretend like we're not. But that, and that's probably why we get in trouble is because we don't own it. But Everybody is, is, is hypocritical. We get so committed to our tribalism. And that's not even just within the church. That's outside the church. And I love that Jesus wouldn't play it. He would not play the tribal game. And we have no indication that these people became Christians. Because like, what we've done is we've interpreted this to mean, you know, when Jesus broke down barriers, we interpret that to mean you can become a Christian from anywhere. So we don't care about your background as long as you become a Christian. Like, so you can be a... You can be a, a drug addict. You can be, you know, uh, a thief. You can you can be an ex-murderer. You can be from a different. You can be whatever and become a Christian. That that's how we've interpreted that. But Jesus didn't make this about becoming a Christian. There's no indication. He didn't say convert and I'll heal you. Some of these people came. He healed them and they left. And we have no indication that they became a Christian. And I think sometimes we have this tendency to feel like, um, like. Uh, uh, what was I going to say here? Oh yeah. Sometimes we have this tendency to feel like um, uh, everything's supposed to be about conversion. Like it, like everything we do is is so someone will join. And obviously we're always wanting that. But I have a sneaking suspicion if the church would give up on evangelism, don't throw stones at me. Give me a second. If the church would give up on evangelism and embrace service like embrace truly serving the world, truly making the world better, we would probably become incredible evangelists. Like if we would stop doing everything for the sole purpose of converting everyone and just say, I was sent into this world to do good. And, and I'm just going to do as, I'm going to take the power of God and do as much good with it as I possibly can. I have a feeling we wouldn't know what to do with all the converts. You know, but, but we go in with this kind of bait and switch thing, you know, where it's, it's all about, you know, if, if you'll come to our church, we'll be happy to help you. You know what I mean? And that, that we, and, and Jesus didn't play that. And I love that he, that he crossed all these barriers just to do good for people. And there's one story that jumped out at me the most because it's the one time that he does kind of recognize a barrier. And it goes like this. Then Jesus went out from the, there and departed to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a woman of Canaan came to this region saying, Have mercy on me, Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely demon-possessed. But he answered, Not a word. And his disciples came and urged him, saying, Send her away, for she cries out after us. And he answered and said, I was not sent except the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Then she came and worshipped him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered and said, It's not good to take the children's bread and throw it to little dogs. And she said, Yes, but even the little dogs eat crumbs from their master's table. And Jesus answered and said, Oh, woman, Great is your faith. Let it be done as you desire. And her daughter was healed from that very hour. And I love that Jesus doesn't say anything for a while until the disciples get engaged. Almost like he was waiting to see what they would do. Because she's calling out to him. And Jesus waits. He doesn't say a word. And the disciples are like, dude, send her away. And that's when Jesus gets engaged. Like the second his people started rejecting her, Jesus like beelined right to her and talks to her. And, and, he, and, he, and he kind of pulls her out of, out of herself, you know, and... and and eventually heals her. And I, I love that he crossed every barrier 
Um, so I think Matthew uh, intentionally records these to challenge us and say what barriers, you know, are you respecting right now that need to come down, that you need to kick down? So to kind of piggyback off of what Chris just talked about um, with the miracles, the sheer amount of miracles that are in the book of Matthew, I kind of thought about there's not necessarily any, there's no theme to it. Like, they're just a whole bunch of miracles. And why... Oops. Why do we need to know about these miracles? And so I kind of dug deeper into that. And I thought about, there's only two times in this book where Jesus' rivals actually confront him enough that they say, tell us who you are. Exactly who are you? And Jesus refuses to answer them. And yet he's healing all of these people. And there's people that are saying that he's the Messiah. And Jesus won't say, won't say that in return. And I think that that was because... His heart was to respond to the desperation and the need that he saw all around him. And he didn't even want to engage the people that were just looking for fodder. They were looking for more things to accuse him of. They were looking to, they wanted him to say, I am the Messiah, and here's how we're going to take over the Romans. And he wouldn't do any of that. He wouldn't engage any of that. Instead, he went to sinners' houses and he washed people's feet, and he healed people who society said weren't worth engaging with in any way, shape, or form. And I kind of look at that in terms of being a parent. And I think that with my kids, like I said, I'm a planner. And so I plan things like family nights, and I plan dinners, and I plan vacations, and I plan conversation topics and I put all of these things in my head and the way that they're supposed to go and they never ever go that way because kids don't ever follow those things ever things never go the way they're supposed to go and yet the things that I think speak most to my kids is when they come in our bedroom late at night and they say hey can you talk and they come and they curl up in bed in between Chris and I and they just share their hearts and they just tell us what they're what they're going through, or what they're scared of right now, or what they're excited about. And I think that that's what Jesus wants from us. He wants us to need him. Just like those people, the people needed Jesus, and they were desperate, and they were willing. I mean, a woman was crawling through a crowd so she could touch just the hem of Jesus' garment. And the reality is, I think Jesus wants that same thing from us. And when we allow ourselves to become that desperate for him, it becomes way easier when our kids or somebody else becomes that desperate and we're able to say to them, let me listen to you. Let me see if there's a way that I can encourage you. Or maybe I can pray for you and you're healed. Or maybe I can give you something that I have an abundance of. But I think sometimes we don't want to stop for long enough to let our kids come climb in bed with us and tell us what's on their heart. That was good. And it did seem like Jesus just responded to human need. Like, and there's times when you just see him almost getting drug around by the need that he saw. You know what I mean? And, and it was, uh, uh, and you can't schedule or plan need. When it shows up, you either meet it or you don't. You know? And, uh, and it's, it's actually a, a running joke between us that 
you know, any, it always seems to be date night. You know, you go out, you, you have a date, you come home, and there's like a line at the door of kids. And you're like, come on in. <laughs> you know, one at a time, can we talk? Yeah, absolutely. Come on in. But, um, yeah, so it's, uh, I like that. Um, the third thing that got me, it isn't really much of a surprise because I'm taking a new bias into the book this time versus every other time that I've studied it, but I, I kind of um, looked at Jesus in this go-through as a church planner. Like, this is a guy who was starting a movement that was going to completely rock the world, and so I kind of analyzed some of Jesus' movements and some of the things that he did in the context of, of how did Jesus start a church? What did this look like? And, um, and it, was, uh, it was crazy frustrating because he did everything you're not supposed to do. He called the most unlikely group of followers. Like if you're if you're grabbing your like core team, um, he got guys that you would never pick. Fishermen who, um, you know, had obviously failed out of uh, yeshiva school, or they wouldn't be fishing. Like in and he grabbed tax collectors. He grabbed a zealot who these were guys who were in trouble with the um, with the authorities for for being you know, violently zealous for their faith. And so he called all these people that were very, very unlikely. Um, and half the time he seemed crazy frustrated with them. Like, you know, he, half the time he was like, how long are you guys going to, uh, why did you doubt? Like, and, and, and yet he works with the, these kind of clumsy, um, loud mouth, like Peter, some of the times Peter talks, you're just like, who says on the Mount of Transfiguration when Jesus is, glowing white and Moses and Elijah's there and Peter's like, dude, let's build an altar. Like who speaks in that moment? Who's got the nerve to even talk right then? You know, but, um, but the, but Jesus is constantly doing stuff that is counterintuitive. Um, there's times when he's got a huge crowd and, and he's got thousands of people following him. And it feels like this is the time you buy your building. Like, this is the moment you really, you know, you've hit critical mass. Plant your church. Do this thing. And Jesus gets on a boat and splits and just, like, leaves everybody. And he shows up on the other side and starts with his small little group again and, and starts over. And, he, and so, so often, I know that in our lives, God will do something and, or, or even speak something to us. And we're like, yes, go. This is the time. Something big will happen in our lives, you know, and we're like, right on. And Jesus is like, no, now just sit. Now just stay for a minute and just soak. And we're like, oh, this is the time to charge, ah, you know. And, and Jesus is like, trust me, trust me. I know what I'm doing. And, and so I guess throughout this book, I was, I was shocked at how many times Jesus does, the, um, does things that don't seem to make sense. If you're trying to start a movement, it feels like he does it all wrong. And yet here we are 2000 years later, still in the current of that movement. And so um, I guess if anything, it put me back in that place where it it made me want to trust Jesus and not my own um, ability. But last one, you can't have any more after this one. (laughs) So the last part of this that um, is probably the most profound part of it because of the impact it had on my life is that 15 years ago I read the story of Jesus telling Peter how to forgive people 
And Jesus just says to forgive and to keep on forgiving. And you listened to Chris's whole sermon on get help and the lost sheep is your brother, then you've got to go find him. And, and all of those things are really true. But when you live it and when you walk through it, there's something that happens in you that makes you different for the rest of your life. Jesus taught on forgiveness. And I went through a period of time 15 years ago where someone hurt me very, very deeply. And they had crossed boundaries that should have never been crossed. And everyone I went to said, you have to forgive and you have to move on. Don't ever let them in your life again. Don't let them around your children. They can never be around you again. And I knew that that was exactly what that person expected. They expected to be cut out of my life, and they expected to be cut out of my family's life. And something in me um, was started to kind of struggle with that a little bit. And I read this story of forgiveness, and I read the parable of the lost sheep. And I went to Chris and I said, if we're supposed to forgive someone 490 times, and I'm supposed to forgive this person, am I really forgiving them 490 times if I don't even let them back in my life? And Chris said, I don't know. And he didn't want me to let this person back in my life either. <laughs> so let's just throw that out there. And so I kept studying and I kept praying and I kept asking God, what does this look like? I don't understand this. Because everybody, literally everyone, is saying, cut this person out of your life. Forgive them, but don't forget what they did. And we hear those things all the time. Forgive, but don't forget. And I just knew somehow that it wasn't, that, that wasn't okay. And so I started to pray and ask God, well, then if that's not what this looks like, then what does it look like? And God started to push me and, and, I guess, give me steps on what I was supposed to do, how I was supposed to forgive this person. And so I did crazy things, things that made people, I think, shake their heads and be like, what in the world is she doing? She's completely lost her mind. And I went out and I bought gifts and I wrote letters and I made food because everybody that knows me knows that food is like, what I do. <laughs> I made food and I sat with this person and I told them that I loved them and that what they had done didn't matter. And I didn't ask for an apology and I didn't care if they gave one. You see, what happened is in me, I figured out that I was the lost sheep and that Jesus loved me so much that he was running after me and he was showing me how to forgive because he knew when I learned how to forgive that I was going to be free. And he knew that when I experienced that freedom that it was going to make me willing to walk through anything to experience that more. And to, and be, and to be willing to say, okay, where else do I have hurt? Where else do I have unforgiveness? Where else do I have brokenness in me that you want to free me from? And it all felt crazy, and I struggled through the whole entire time thinking, well, what if I make people upset? 
Or what if I do something wrong? What if I screw it up? And I did. I did all of those things. I made people upset. In fact, someone who was really, really important to me died angry with me over this. And I screwed things up. I did things wrong. I didn't finish things I should have finished. I let things go that I shouldn't have let go. But the reality is, I sit here today and I say that none of that really mattered because I still was able to walk through that situation and I still was able to experience something that I can never, ever go back. I can't go back. And so, forgiveness for me was just the beginning of experiencing what Jesus was. It was just the beginning of me starting to see that Jesus was really not at all what I thought he was. And so I guess what I want to say to you is I hope that you will find that one area in you, that one area, that scab, that thing that won't heal, and that you'll say, Jesus, how do I experience you in this one area? That's good. That's real good. So how do we respond to this? To this whole 27-week study? Um, We started this book saying that one of the things that makes Christianity unique is that this isn't a... In in most other religions, there's a prophet that brings you a teaching or a word. So there's this prophet that that comes and and he comes out of a cave or he comes out of uh, enlightenment and and he gives a teaching. Jesus isn't that way. This isn't the, the teacher coming to give us a teaching. This is a teaching drawing us to the teacher. The teaching is not... The end result. This is not Jesus telling you how to live. This isn't a better, and it is a better way to live. And if you follow it, it's absolutely a, a great life. It's a much better life. But ultimately, this is about Matthew writing something to, to invite us to Jesus. This is, this is Matthew drawing us to this Savior who, who gripped his life so tightly that 40 years later, Matthew is still telling the story. And he's writing it down. He's realizing, I'm not going to live a whole lot longer. I've got to get this on paper you know, so that this can go on. He's still wanting more and more people to know Jesus. But I found Jesus um, surprising. Um, I saw him showing grace to people, even when he was criticized for it. Um, I saw him dealing with the sting of rejection. The people in his own town wouldn't receive him. Um, And so he had to feel what it felt like to be rejected by people who should have known him best and should have accepted him. I saw him being the only person ever truly deserving of recognition and power and constantly going, don't tell anybody, you know, that you were healed. Just go about your way. But heal somebody and then tell them not to tell anybody. Peter came and said, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus said, God has revealed this to you, not man. Don't tell anybody I'm, Jesus, I'm the Messiah. Like constantly stepping out of the spotlight when most of us would step in. I saw him being incredibly, shockingly compassionate um, to people that he had every right to not be compassionate to. I saw him being painfully honest in the missional discourse when he's sending out his disciples, when he's giving them their like their marching orders, their rally cry. He's like, oh yeah, and when you go out, it's going to be real ugly. People are going to pick on you. They're going to 
they're going to beat you. Sometimes you're going to get taken in and accused of things and, and, and some of your family is going to turn against you. It's going to be rough. Like he was really, really honest with what they had to expect. I saw him uh, uh, refusing to give the easy answers when John came to him, when, when it would have been real easy to just whisper to somebody, go back and tell John I'm the Messiah. He doesn't do that. He says, I don't, I don't know, what do you see? Do you see people being healed? Do you see the gospel being preached to the poor? Do you see, you know, demons being cast out? Do you see miracles happening? Just tell John what you see. That's all you can do. Like he, he wouldn't give quick, easy, pat, cliche answers. Nothing that would go easy on Facebook. Nothing we could tweet. But most of all, I felt like I met this ex-tax collector who desperately wanted people to know about Jesus. This guy who had no right to deserve where he was and, and, and being compelled um, by this person enough that he turned the rest of his life over to him. And I love, I'm a, you guys know me, I'm, a, I'm big on, on you, you can't ever take a snapshot of somebody's life and see how they're doing spiritually. Spiritual progress can only be recorded over time. You know, it's, it can only be, you can only look back and go, oh my gosh, you know, because never are we where we want to be. So it, you can only, all you can do is stop and turn around and go, holy cow, I, I used to be, you know, I used to be here and now I'm here. I mean, Doug gave me a phrase I can't let go of. He was like, man, I... I'm a mess, but I'm, I'm a better mess than I used to be. Like, at least I'm a better mess, you know. And that's that's my new, like, mantra. I'm a better mess, you know. Um, but I see this guy who 40 years after his conversion is still caught up. And I'm like, that's the prize. That's the prize is Jesus. If 40 years from now I can still be on this path, that's success to me. That's the real That's the real thing. So tonight, as we go to the table, I invite you to dive in, I think. Above all else, I think um, that if the gospel doesn't get inside you and tear you apart and break you down and put you back together again just to tear you down again and put you back together again, then you probably didn't um, you probably didn't hear it right. So if after this study you don't feel like you're in over your head a little bit, then I probably didn't preach it right because I think that's where we're supposed to be. I think we're supposed to feel like this is too big. This is too much. Like this is too deep. This is too, and and to where we're just like, okay, God, here I am. I'm I'm in over my head. Like I'm, all I can do is dive in at this point and say, you know, here I am. Because we'll never have a nice, clean, workable plan on how to fit Jesus into our life. You know, there's never just this. We'll just put him here. This will be my Jesus stuff, and then I'll have my other stuff over here. He doesn't work that way. He likes to come in and turn over tables and 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 mess things up and and flip us around and and he'll ask us to forget people, forgive people that we don't want to. He'll ask us to love people that we've always hated. Um, he'll destroy our allegiances while telling us we have to have an undying devotion to God and and other humans. He'll uh, in the midst of all that chaos. He'll always invite us, and he puts it like this. This is what I want to end with. He says, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. 
Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light.